1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. If you're not fishing a dry dropper rig, you're really not fishing to the peak of your potential. Utilizing a dry fly with a length of tippet and then a nymph underneath it is an excellent way to optimize your time on the water. It's also great if you're not a fan of nymph fishing because, let's be honest, dry fly fishing is a lot of fun and it's easy if you can figure out how to get a good drift. Nymph fishing, however, is very intimidating, especially for new anglers because they don't know exactly what's going on under the water. And if you're fishing water that has some chop on it, if you're fishing water where it's difficult to maintain a connection between you and your nymph, detecting those strikes can be difficult. And the benefit of fishing with a dry and a dropper is that now you have doubled your opportunities to catch fish because you have two flies on instead of one. The science behind fishing multiple fly rigs is a lot more complicated than put a fly on the top and put a fly on the bottom. Especially when you get into a lot of the contemporary nymphing schemes. Now, this is something where I am readily admitting that that's beyond my depth. And that's a little bit of a pun because one of the things that I don't completely understand is exactly how to utilize weight and tippet diameter and fly size to achieve all the different things that I know that can be done. I've read the books, I've watched the YouTube videos, I've fished with guys that are pros, but I, I really just put flies on there that I think are gonna get down to where I want them to be, and I catch fish so I don't worry about it too much, but I do know that if I wanted to, and I wanted to fish this style and this technique a lot more, there are easy avenues for figuring out how to utilize weight, distribution of weight, different flies, and all those things to achieve the multiple nymph rig systems that have proven effective here and around the world. But that's not what we're talking about today. I'm not even talking necessarily about dry dropper rigs. Today I'm talking about multiple fly rigs that are not those traditional setups, dry dropper or multiple nymph rigs. There are other ways to utilize two flies where they're actually not simply two different flies on your leader, but they're two flies that work in tandem to benefit one another. So I'm going to use four examples, and surely there's more than this, but these are the four that I've used that I think are worth 
adding to your repertoire and allowing you to fish a little bit more efficiently in circumstances that these might fit into. So the first is a dry dropper rig. You might say, that's what you led with, that's the most common thing, having a big chubby grasshopper with a little copper john underneath it. Everyone does that, what's special? Why am I even listening to you talk about this? Well, here's the reason why. A lot of people utilize strike indicators, which is totally fine. It's not my preference. I prefer to tightline nymph, but there are some situations, some currents, some casting circumstances that make utilizing a tightline nymph situation just impossible. So there are times where you use strike indicators. Strike indicators are great, but how many times have you had a fish eat your strike indicator? While wild and native fish do do this, I think in my experience and in the experience of folks that I fish with and talk to, this happens most often in two situations. The first is stock trout, which have some ridiculous penchant for looking up. I'm not sure why. Maybe that's because that's the direction pellets came from. And two, opportunistic small stream fish, which aren't necessarily small fish. So when I say small stream fish, I'm not saying small fish that live in a stream, but small stream fish, which depending on that water, its carrying capacity, its nutrient load, whatever, could actually be pretty good sized fish. But these fish, because they're opportunistic, are also looking up. So in those situations, when I do, I do a dry dropper because there's a good chance that that fish will see something floating over its head and go after it. So those are situations where I feel like tying a dry fly on as a strike indicator is giving me a chance at getting fish and it's reasonable and it's also accomplishing the same goal of putting a indicator on. Now there's there's times where I do put an indicator on and fish that because I have very little confidence that any fish is going to come up and eat it and they still do that. I mean I've fished native and wild streambred trout on finicky spring creeks that I've watched eat cigarette butts. So they're fish. I mean, we have to remember that they're fish. But in those moments when you think that your probability of having a fish look up in a situation where you're not matching the hatch, you're not doing something like that, you're simply putting a fly on so that the fish have an option to eat something because there's a chance those fish are going to eat something off the surface. In those cases, I say put on something chubby, put on something fluffy. You don't want to do this if with a with a again a, a delicate little mayfly because the primary purpose of this is to float your nymph rig so that you can detect where it is, detect strikes and things like that. So whether that be something like a humpy or a really fluffy caddis or even a foam version of a traditional dry fly, it doesn't have to be a big chubby foam terrestrial, but it can be a fly that you can see that won't sink anytime soon that will keep your nymph where you want it, either for depth or for strike indicating purposes, and that is a reasonable thing for those fish to eat. But again, they're eating strike indicators, they're eating cigarette butts, so don't get too crazy about it. Anyway, that's the first thing. It's just kind of the dry dropper rig where you're using the dry as a strike indicator, but there is a reasonable chance that the fish are going to strike it eventually themselves. The second one I really like and I use a lot is a dry with a tiny dry dropper, all right? I use this in situations where I'm not able to midge in a perfect environment. So my perfect midging situation is casting my long leader 
onto glassy water so I'm able to see that fly and it on the surface and trace it and watch it and detect that strike. Because a lot of times fish that are keyed into midges are gonna be rising all over the place. They aren't necessarily gonna be in one lane. They're gonna be cruising. And you're able to watch your fly, watch the fish and see it all come together. Now those situations do happen and that's awesome and I love it, but those aren't guaranteed. You're gonna find fish that are midging in back eddies, fish that are eating midges in broken water, and it's very difficult to keep an eye on that 22, 24, 26, 28 midge in those situations. So as soon as you cast it, it's very difficult to see it. And a lot of the times, you know, you have some common midge colors, right? You've got your uh, cream and your olive and your gray. Those are really hard to see. They don't present a lot of contrast in most situations. White and black, you can see. Uh, bright colors, you can see depending on the, the light situations. But more often than not, those smaller flies, once you get past 20, are very difficult to see. So what I like to do, and this is just a, a generic setup, is you go to five or six X, maybe 10 feet or so, and then you put on a 16 or an 18 dry fly, preferably something with a parachute. Now, don't make it gaudy. Don't go to your chubby Chernobyl. Don't go to your big humpy. Use a small mayfly, something subtle, again, with a parachute. Then three more feet. So if you were ending your, your leader at 5x, then maybe three feet of 6x. Or if you're ending your leader at 6x, maybe three feet of 7x. Because once you get into those high 20s, you're going to need that to get through the hook eye. And that's when you tie your midge on. This does a few things. When you're in choppy water, it gives you some visual connection with where your fly ended up. It allows you to see kind of the general area of where your fly is. And this does two things. The first thing that it does is it helps you just orient yourself to where your fly is. Secondly, it'll help you orient yourself to where your fly is and then detect your fly. And this might be something that has to happen every time you fish, or this might be something that happens as you're getting into a season of midging where once you kind of see where your fly is, you can see where your fly is, and you train your eyes to see your midge. Or, I guess this would be the third thing, you just at least have a frame of reference of where your fly is, and so you have a little bit more confidence when you see a little sip, something going after the midge. So uh, that's a great little setup. And actually, I've found that if fish that are, are eating midges, although they are discerning in one sense, they're not completely turned off to the idea of eating other small dry flies in the area. So say you're fishing a gray or a dun-colored midge, size 24. If you have a size 18 parachute atoms on there, and especially if it's lubed up with floatant and it's floating on its hackles, there's a good chance they'll go after that also. But that's a great way to midge fish if you're not super confident or you're not seeing your midges very well or you're fishing broken water. Third thing, a streamer with a nymph dropper. This is not revolutionary, and this is a simple simple thing that you've probably done before, but this is why I do it, and this is how I do it. A lot of times when you're prospecting for trout using a small streamer, you're going to get fish that respond in one way, shape, or form. So I don't like to use the modern contemporary streamers that are big, long, and chunky when I'm looking for fish. If I know that there's a big fish there or I'm going through a deep pool or the place has a reputation for it, then I will use those bigger streamers from time to time. But if I'm in a place where the fish might not be huge, might not be super aggressive, the water conditions, the weather, it's not conducive to chasing fish with giant streamers, 
I will throw on a more traditional streamer. So something like, a, I mean, a Mickey Finn or a, a Grey Ghost or even a Muddler or a sparsely hackled Wooly Bugger, something in a size 8, 10, 12. You'll be able to drag a fly through a run next to a bank, through a pool, and you're not going to be disturbing the fish, but you might get fish that have a little bit of curiosity but aren't willing to commit. That's great because you're not scaring the fish like you would if you were dragging a game changer or you know some giant articulated streamer through the pool. You're just fishing the pool and presenting something to the fish. When you do this, if you have a fly tailing it, so in this situation what I like to do is have, again, that more traditional and simple streamer with two or three feet behind it and then a buggy nymph. So something that simulates something that would be moving like a, uh, a stonefly pattern or a helgramite pattern or even a larger caddisfly pattern that I have dragging behind my streamer. Again, two things are happening. First, if that fish isn't super uh, committed to chasing after that streamer, they're now given a second opportunity on something that in their little fish brain isn't going to be as elusive and as difficult to track down as a bait fish. You have a tumbling macroinvertebrate. All right, so that's the first thing. Secondly, if the water is at all stained or the glare is doing something where you can't see your presentation and you're having to fish a little bit of slack line or you're drifting, then now you have something that, especially if it's lighter, you know, whether it be white or have some yellow in the cheek or, or a stripe of red in it or something like that in one of these streamers, you now have a visual connection to where your dead drifted nymph is. So you can almost use that streamer as a subsurface strike indicator. And I've done this very often and you see that thing twitch and you know exactly what's happening. You set the hook and you're golden. You're onto the fish. The cool thing about this is that you can fish this any way you want. You could strip it slowly back and I would actually suggest that if you are going to fish a nymph dropper behind a small streamer, don't just tear it through the water, but do a gentle retrieve. Again, this is a situation that's calling for a little bit of subtlety, right? So do a gentle retrieve and give it some pauses, some stops. If the fish is at all intrigued, you'll see it where they come up following the flash and then they see the smaller thing behind it. This is not unlike a lot of like trolling, for example. You've got those big flash rigs that people throw for lake trout and for landlocked salmon and for walleye and things like that. But what are the fish actually going for? They're going for that small traditional fly. It's essentially the same thing and it works in those situations. It'll work on streams and rivers and ponds. All right, so that's the third thing. Fourth one is the mouse midge rig, right? Get a mouse with a midge. I'm just kidding. That sounds like a terrible idea. Never do that. Don't put a midge behind a mouse. But but legitimately, I'd throw a mouse or some sort of popper because honestly, I'm not super convinced that fish care about the pattern of mouse that you're throwing. I think you could throw a bass bug. I think you could throw a gurgler. You could probably throw a small hula popper on there or jitterbug and they wouldn't care. They're just caring about something that has a silhouette against the night sky that's making a disturbance. And in their mind, they know that's a mouse or a frog or a wounded bait fish, right? So I love mouse patterns, but I think simpler is better. For the sake of discussion today, mouse pattern trailed by a small streamer. Same reasons as I've said before with the streamer and the nymph. You're looking at fish that might see that, be intrigued, but for whatever reason, they're not ready to commit. Either they don't want to expend the energy to chase after something that's on the surface, that's bigger, 
maybe they just get their attention aroused by the commotion that you're making and they're more prone to take a small bait fish that is also interested in the commotion that's above them than they are to actually go up and chase the whatever's plopping across the surface. So you give yourself that opportunity. You're essentially using that popper or that mouse as an attractor, and they then see an easier meal fluttering behind it in, to them, what looks like a bait fish. This, again, isn't anything new. You see popper dropper fishing for warm water species and in the salt, and you're using that popper to get their attention, and then they are then going after the smaller, more accessible food source. In this situation, what I would recommend doing is not using just like a foot and a half or a two foot tippet section between that mouse fly and then your bottom fly. Uh, if you've ever fished mice, you know that sometimes fish have the tendency to go up and whack the fly first before they come back and grab it, or they kind of slash at it because they, they have to strike aggressively because that's going to be their opportunity to get a food source that is going to go crazy once uh, they attack it the first time. And so you don't want to have a fly that's right behind it that you're going to foul hook that fish if you set the hook because it's just slashed at your fly. So I would make a longer tippet section when it comes to that situation just to keep the fish safe and uh, prevent you from um, hooking them. That being said, you've got a fly that has a lot of resistance on the surface of the water. So if that fish takes the streamer that's trailing three feet down it's going to be pulling against that mouse pattern that has fighting all that surface tension. So even if you're a little bit late in the hook set because you have a three or maybe even a four foot section of tippet between that fly that is taken and the mouse fly, you're gonna be able to hook up to that fish. I've done it, it, it might seem awkward, but uh, it works. Similarly, and I would say when it comes to awkwardness, you're going to run into it if you're casting that setup at night. You really have to be very, very deliberate. But I think that is also just a, a word of warning to use the right gear when you're fishing mice. We sometimes have the tendency to say, well, I've been fishing my five weight all day. Now it's dark. I'm going to put a mouse on a five weight. That works fine, but you're going to really fish mice better, really fish poppers better on heavier, you know, six, seven, even eight weights. And the fish that are going to be taking those flies, you know, eight weights these days, it doesn't feel like you're pulling a fish with a broom. All right, but that's neither here nor there. That's that's you know a different topic. So those are four ideas. You have your dry as a indicator dropper. You have your dry with your tiny dry. You have the streamer with the nymph below it, and then you have the mouse with the streamer below it. Four ideas. Now what separates these four from a lot of the multi-fly nymph rigs and even some of the dry dropper rigs that are just traditional is that here you have two flies working in tandem. Either the, the top fly attracts the fish which takes the bottom fly or the top fly is there to help you identify the bottom fly and where it is in the water, but it also gives you a realistic chance to catch fish. So what you end up with is a situation where the result, the whole, is greater than the sum of the component parts. Again, when you're fishing any sort of multi-fly rig, make sure your knots work. Pre-tie things if you need to and use some sort of leader keeper. I like the fly trap fly holder is a, a simple one, but this allows you to quickly change things, quickly move from rig to rig, not have to tie three knots every time, but only one knot or two maximum. So 
what do you think? Have you done anything like this before? Do you have a different two-fly setup that's maybe outside of a traditional dry dropper or multi-nymph rig, or is different from one of the ones that I mentioned? If so, let me know in the comments on this page of this podcast on castingacross.com. This week on castingacross.com had two articles. The first one is called Rusty Flybox, Good and Bad Fly Shops. Now, the Rusty Flybox kind of series that I put out is recycling old content, which sounds really lazy, but hear me out. Last week, I put out two articles and a podcast all about fly shops, especially what makes a good fly shop. So on this Monday, both because I was away this weekend and also because a lot of people were reading and interacting with that fly shop content, I decided to put out two older articles. One was about a good experience at a fly shop and one was about a bad experience at the fly shop. I name the good fly shop and give them the credit for what they did and what they deserve, but I did not name the bad fly shop. I just don't think that's my place or really what I want to do, but they're out there. All right. And then Wednesday, I wrote Fly Fishing and the Escape from Reason. This was a little bit more of a deep post. It asks the question, do you use fly fishing to give your life meaning or does your life give meaning to your fly fishing? If you want to know what that means, then go read Fly Fishing and the Escape from Reason. This week, I'm going to recommend a page, an article called The Class of 1967, and that's on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's website. And what it is, is it talks about the original endangered species that were listed back in 1967. Now, there are some animals that have gone extinct, and that's very unfortunate, but by and large, most of these species, this original class, is doing very well. Some of them are delisted, some of them are close to being delisted, So I don't want to make this political. I don't want to say anything more than what I'm saying, so don't read into it. But I think this shows that things aren't as bad as the narrative that we usually get says things are. These might be a lot, and I'm saying a lot. We're talking birds, we're talking fish, we're talking mammals, we're talking all sorts of stuff, trout in particular, that by and large, these species are doing well. They have made progress because of intervention that is in a response to the problems that people have impacted them with. But we have a lot of animals that are doing well. And again, I know a couple of species don't mitigate other issues, but I think that things like this are important to keep in our minds as we hear the narrative that everything is awful and everything is terrible uh, because it, it provides a little bit of balance that is certainly needed, if anything, just for the sake of optimism. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish.